Fidel Castro rose to power in a violent coup d'etat. Once in charge, he immediately forced his countrymen to adopt his own ideology, one that elevated the state to be at the center of all things. Within that center was Castro himself, a man referred to as El Jefe Maximo. Political opponents were imprisoned by this self-proclaimed maximum boss, land was redistributed, unemployment skyrocketed, and Cuba became cut off from its economic lifeline, the United States. Throughout all of it, the Castro regime persevered. While the violence of his regime never truly dissipated, the new communist sovereign began to stack up victories. Universal education became the norm, Cuban illiteracy was eradicated, and its healthcare system became the envy of Latin America. For 49 years, Fidel Castro remained in charge of Cuba, and unlike his contemporary authoritarians, he was able to retain his power and influence over his people, even unto death. His brother, Raul Castro, would go on to take the reins and held them firmly until 2018, when the baton was then passed to Raul's hand-chosen successor, Miguel Diaz-Canel. In his acceptance speech, Diaz-Canel informed the National Assembly that the mandate given by the people to this house is to give continuity to the Cuban Revolution in a crucial historic moment. Who was this man that brought revolution to Cuba, drew the permanent wrath of his northern neighbor despite having 300 million less citizens, and who would go on to inspire a wave of socialist revolutions across Latin America? You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is about the life and legacy of Cuba's most infamous dictator, Fidel Castro, his rise to power. Castro was not the first dictator to grace the shores of Cuba. Christopher Columbus ushered in an era of violence upon his arrival to the island shores on October 27, 1492. Among the indigenous groups calling Cuba their home were the Taino, a group that was both welcoming and generous to their European visitors. Columbus wrote in his journal of the initial encounter, stating that the Taino will give all they do possess for anything that is given to them, exchanging things even for bits of broken crockery. He goes on to describe them, stating that they were very well built, with very handsome bodies and very good faces. They do not carry arms or know them. They should be good servants. Although he used a euphemism for it, Columbus declared an intent to enslave the first people that he met and thus began the history of imperialism and authoritarianism on the island known as the Pearl of the Antilles. The history of Cuban despotism continues unabridged to this very day. 
The indigenous locals swiftly died off due to invasive European diseases, as well as the harsh treatment meted out by Columbus, who had immediately established a quota for gifts of mined gold. The obligatory work involved harsh penalties, which scaled all the way up to the loss of the workers' hands. The unintended eradication of the indigenous population offered the Spanish the chance to start fresh, with a blank slate of sorts. Rather than a utopia, the European powerhouse instead imbued the island with a legacy of inequality. Cuba was left underdeveloped and neglected, as Spain and France instead fought over who could make Santo Domingo and its two halves of Haiti and the Dominican Republic more productive in the highly prosperous sugar trade. After the collapse of French Haiti, which experienced the only successful slave revolt in history, Spain expanded their operations in Cuba by rapidly pursuing its development as one of the world's preeminent sugar producers. 600,000 African slaves were forcibly brought to the island. Their importance to the island today remains highlighted in the fact that Cuba was the last Caribbean territory to abolish slavery. Spain's prior neglect turned quickly into smothering attention and abject poverty was instantly replaced by widespread prosperity at least for the land-owning class. Whereas other Spanish colonies yearned for freedom during the Age of Independence, Cuba remained stubbornly loyal to the Spanish throne. But as inequality increased and the spoils of slavery became increasingly held in the hands of just a few foreign landholders, the local population sought to take the reins of power for themselves. The Creole citizens of Cuba, those who possessed mixed European and African heritage, began to threaten the status quo. The rug was pulled out from underneath the island's Spanish loyalists during what became known as the Spanish-American War. The war, in large part, occurred because powerful stateside business owners sought to add the island to America's collection of rapidly growing states. The Cuban-led Ten Years' War against Spain received a decade-long pause after José Martí, their revolutionary leader, was killed during the Second Independence War. Upon his death, it became America's turn to confront Spain. The peace treaty to end the war freed Cuba, gave the United States the territories of the Philippines, Guam, and Puerto Rico. While the creation of an overseas empire should have delighted the Americans, there was a group of businessmen whose entire purpose in nudging the two powers to war had been to gain control of Cuba. Prevented from this mission via the Congressional Platt Amendment, they looked to see who on the island would be willing to perform in the role of their puppet. They had major interests to protect, and weren't willing to let the island's independence get in the way of their profits. Post-war, the U.S. owned 75% of the island's agriculture and sugar plantations, as well as the staggeringly high number of 100% of Cuba's oil refineries, their telephone system, and they also controlled the island's entire energy sector. 
The first puppet slash independent leader of Cuba, Tomas Estrada Palma, showed thanks to the U.S. by agreeing to lease Guantanamo Bay in perpetuity to the Americans. It would first become the predominant Caribbean military base, which allowed for the region-wide imposition of American hegemony. Guantanamo Bay would then later serve as a sign of American injustice and oppression after it was turned into a prison site for the worst of the worst in the War on Terror. The continued existence of the base and its battery of Americans was a problematic splinter that Castro was never able to remove. The U.S. continues to pay its portion of the lease, which amounts to roughly $4,000 each year. Castro was reportedly so furious at the centuries-old agreement that he never even cashed one American check for the land. When Palma's government failed, the U.S. military occupied the island during the Taft administration in order to ensure a peaceful transition of power that would continue to maintain American interests. Jose Miguel Gomez was the next ruler. He expanded U.S. territory on the island and ensured that U.S. business interests had a monopoly on major industries, including the falsely named U.S.-owned Cuban Telephone Company. Mario Menical, the next ruler, grew up in U.S. boarding schools. Alfredo Alfonso followed but was hamstrung by constant U.S. meddling in his administration. Geraldo Machado's rule crossed into an authoritarian dictatorship that was initially propped up by loans from U.S. financial institutions, before later being deposed of with the help of the U.S. State Department. The next three rulers were in charge for a combined 29 days before Raymond Grau made it for what had to feel like a record-breaking 127 days in office. However, the lack of recognition by the U.S. doomed Grau's administration, and he found himself forced out of power by the head of the army, Fugencio Batista. Under Batista, a U.S.-backed dictator, Cuba became the Las Vegas of the Caribbean. Anything went in this gangster's paradise, and it was said that what happened in Havana stayed in Havana. The island was a frequent hideout for the mob and mob-adjacent celebrities such as Frank Sinatra. David Detzer, an American journalist, described Batista's Cuba as a place where brothels flourished. In fact, a major industry grew up around them. Government officials received bribes and policemen collected protection money. Prostitutes could be seen standing in doorways, strolling the streets during daylight hours, or leaning from open windows. One report estimated that 11,500 of them worked their trade in the city of Havana alone. Beyond the outskirts of the capital, beyond the slot machines, was one of the poorest, and most beautiful countries in the Western world. At the center of the maelstrom was the infinitely corrupt Batista, a man whose policies were likely responsible for the death of tens of thousands of his countrymen. This would be the Cuba that Fidel Castro would lead a revolution against.
Fidel Castro was born in 1926, 14 years before Batista would sit behind the Pearl's presidential desk. His father, born to a poor family in Spain, became a relatively wealthy sugar plantation owner in Cuba. Fidel's mother was one of his father's household servants, a woman 28 years younger that was decidedly not the man's wife. Fidel was raised in the house of his father along with two other illegitimate siblings, and he would go on to be educated in one of the nation's top private Jesuit schools. He would go on to attend law school in Havana, but he was never considered to be a great student, and instead of studying, spent most of his focus on sports, particularly his favorite, baseball. Like most of history's dictators, however, his upbringing was anything but simple. He wouldn't be legitimately recognized by his father until he turned 17. He also never looked back on his early life as one that had prepared him for his life as the president of Cuba, nor would he allow much digging into his family's situation and how it formed his core personality traits. When the questions came up, he would shift the subject to the grander debate between socialism and capitalism. Fidel had come to view capitalism as an evil, corrupting force. Thus, his own personal privilege as a child was viewed as something that he had to run from, rather than something that had helped to propel him to leadership. Distancing himself from his privileged childhood, he would say, I was not the son of a worker, or lacking in material or social resources for a relatively comfortable existence. I could say I miraculously escaped wealth. He regularly avoided discussion on the early portion of his life, revealing that, quote, it doesn't sound too good to say I'm the son of a landowner. So let us rather say I am the grandson of exploited Galatian peasants. The decision to enroll in law school in Havana was the turning point in Castro's life. Entering the university, he admitted that he was functionally, politically illiterate. That changed quickly as he joined student government and quickly became indoctrinated in the concepts of nationalism, anti-imperialism, and socialism. He gained an understanding of Cuba's history in what must have felt as a flood of knowledge. Understanding Cuba's history is to understand a nation whose choices and sovereignty were continually taken away from them. As sugar prices declined during the instability of the era, poverty and inflation naturally increased. Due to the inherent corruption of the government, however, the pain was never evenly spread among the Cuban people. His own family had been saved from the hardship, but at university he learned how others had suffered in his stead. Politics consumed his life on campus, and Fidel rose quickly within the Orthodoxo party as a student. He was known as an outstanding orator, had an exceptional memory for everything he read and heard, and was a popular athlete. He retained these traits throughout his life. Fidel Castro would go on to be known as one of the most charismatic leaders in history. Political life, even if it was just student government, was fraught with danger in Cuba. 
Two years into law school, his group had become terrorized by gang violence on campus. The agitators were from Grau's presidential administration, which was in turn being propped up by Batista and the U.S. Feeling as if he could not do anything for his own country, Fidel lashed out against U.S. imperialism in 1947 by joining 1,200 men intent on traveling to the Dominican Republic to overthrow the American-allied military junta of Rafael Grillo. The liberating force, however, never got off the beach, as the Grau administration arrested the majority of them before they took off from the island. Fidel escaped arrest by jumping off of his boat and swimming to shore under the cover of darkness. This would not be the last lucky escape in his revolutionary life. The embarrassment and harsh treatment of his fellow revolutionaries convinced Castro to refocus his energies abroad to injustice at home. The enemy was still U.S. imperialism, but this time the battleground would be his homeland. We will detail the violence inherent to Castro and his regime in our second episode on Fidel, but it's worth noting that in this moment of willingness to rebel in the Dominican, one can see that Fidel's future was never going to be filled with peace. Historian Paul Johnson points out that Castro's actions as dictator came as no surprise to those who knew him as a young man for he was marked by a violent personality from the beginning. By the age of 21, Fidel Castro would go on to help organize deadly riots in Colombia that would claim 3,000 lives. That same year, he was accused of murdering the Minister of Sport after getting into a gun battle with Cuban police. Publicly, however, the violent tendencies of the man were hidden through his charitable works. After turning 22, Fidel shifted further and further to the extreme left, as he became increasingly enamored with the concepts of social justice, a phrase which had been originally coined by the Jesuits, the group responsible for his education. The works of Marx, Lenin, and Engels were on his reading list, and he began to view Cuba's history primarily through a lens of capitalist exploitation. According to him, he found capitalism repugnant, saying that it is filthy, it is gross, it is alienating, because it causes war, hypocrisy, and competition. Social justice became his life's aim, and he went on to found a law firm which was explicitly focused on helping poor Cubans assert their rights regarding education, health care, social security, labor rights, public service, progressive taxation, market regulation, distribution of wealth, and equal opportunities for all. Social justice isn't precisely communism or a Marxist idea, but the concepts overlap quite a bit in their search to limit the harm inflicted upon the unequal distribution of wealth and opportunity. Unfortunately, there just isn't a lot of money in becoming a crusader for social justice, and his business quickly went underwater. Predictably, Castro went into debt, and his home's electricity was shut off, leaving him, his wife, and their young son in the dark. His future looked just as dim. In 1950, he was arrested for assaulting the police during a protest. 
When you've hit rock bottom, you have to either pick yourself up or find someone willing to give you a helping hand. Castro was gifted the latter, and his hope for a better life soon rested in the hand and word of the Orthodoxo party's leader, Eduardo Chabaz. Regrettably, he soon lost that anchoring influence when Chabas took his own life after being accused of corruption by the sitting Grau administration. Chabas's suicide occurred during a live radio broadcast in an attempt to serve as a last wake-up call for the Cuban people to rise up against their government. Fidel was present for the event and remained at Chabas's bedside when he passed. Fidel took up his cause and ran as a candidate for Congress in 1952. His platform was honesty, decency, and justice, three things he believed were not currently offered by the ruling party. But the elections were never consummated as Batista finally emerged from the shadows from where he had been previously pulling the strings. He went on to take power for himself in a military-led coup d'etat. The trajectory of Cuban history would likely have been dramatically altered had Castro been allowed to rise properly through a democratic government. Fidel put his law degree to use and sued the new government for their unjust seizure of power, but the lawsuits were quickly dismissed. This forced the angry and alienated Fidel to find a different way to influence his nation. Rather than taking Shabazz's final words metaphorically, Fidel would apply them literally, as in it was literally time to rise up against the government before it was too late. That moment came in 1953, as Castro led the Moncada assault. Like Adolf Hitler's 1923 beer hole Castro's first effort at overthrowing the government should have been the last that we ever heard of the young man. On July 26, 1953, 140 men joined Fidel Castro and his brother Raul in attacking the Moncada military barracks. The assault force was dressed in military uniforms, and their intention was to seize the armament within the barracks in order to hand the weapons out to the Oriente province, a portion of Cuba that was home to many of the leading voices against the central government. The barracks were far enough in the countryside that Batista's reinforcements likely wouldn't arrive in time to influence the conflict, and the day of the assault was strategically picked to coincide with a popular street festival in nearby Santiago. Castro hoped to attack a military installation that would be virtually empty and that was unable to be reinforced. The brothers' planning wasn't exhaustive. Writer Norberto Fuentes recounted the extent of it, stating, One night, Castro was at the steps of the university. No money, no work, and he does not know what to do. And that's when he decides to attack the Moncada barracks. He convinced university student leaders to provide him with the machine guns that they regularly kept for emergencies. Clearly, Fidel's late-night college experience was quite different from my own. During times of indecision about my future, I usually just ordered some pizza and breadsticks and then went to bed. The organizational meetings for the attack occurred within his sister's house. 
To some extent, even Castro knew it was a suicide mission, but one that he was willing to undertake. He told his supporters that even if it failed, it would be heroic and have symbolic value. At this point, his life's prospects were so hopeless that martyrdom seemed his best course of action. As expected, the assault didn't go well. The military managed to defend the barracks successfully, and nearly half of the participants were either killed or captured. Fidel and his brother Raul both managed to escape, but both heard in great details about the torture that their friends suffered at the hands of the government. Many of them had their eyeballs removed and then subsequently sent to their family members. Unwilling to let insurrection go, Batista hunted down all those involved in the Moncada assault. The Castro brothers turned themselves in after receiving assurances of a fair trial, a deal that was brokered by his extremely well-connected wife. In another parallel to Hitler's rise to power, Fidel, a trained lawyer, decided to defend himself and his actions undertaken in the treasonous assault by putting the state on trial instead. His opening statement and overall defense strategy were both entitled, History Will Absolve Me. Here's a small excerpt of his four-hour courthouse speech. There are 200,000 peasant families who do not have a single acre of land to cultivate to provide food for their starving children. A revolutionary government with the backing of the people and the respect of the nation, after cleaning the various institutions of all venal and corrupt officials, would proceed immediately to industrialize the country, mobilizing all in active capital, currently estimated at about $500 million through the National Bank and the Agricultural, Industrial, and Development Bank, and submitting this mammoth task to experts and men of absolute competence, completely removed from all political machinations for study, direction, planning, and realization. A revolutionary government would solve the housing problem by cutting all rents in half, by providing tax exemptions on homes inhabited by the owners, by tripling taxes on rented homes, by tearing down hovels and replacing them with modern multiple-dwelling buildings, and by financing housing all over the island on a scale heretofore unheard of, with the criterion that, just as each rural family should possess its own track of land, each city family should own its home or apartment. Finally, a revolutionary government would undertake the integral reform of the educational system, bringing it in line with the foregoing projects with the idea of educating those generations who have the privilege of living in a happy land. The speech would serve to both elevate the status of Fidel Castro as the leader of the leftist elements on the island, as well as become his platform for rule. Remember that although it may sound like a presidential acceptance speech, the History Will Absolve Me speech was delivered in a courtroom that Fidel was obligated to be in. It was delivered to a judge determining his fate rather than throngs of his supporters. The verdict was also predetermined. In fact, 65 of the defendants on trial had nothing to do with the assault on the barracks but instead were political opponents that Batista used the opportunity to purge. 
Raoul was sentenced to 13 years, and Fidel received a 15-year sentence. Prison was a positive for the young man. He rebranded his political party as the 26th of July movement. He formed a school within the prison walls and liberally taught the ideas of Marx and Lenin, as well as Freud, Kant, and Shakespeare, all analyzed through a Marxist framework, of course. His four-hour speech in the courtroom was transformed into a small book and distributed to his supporters. Not all was positive, however. He would go on to obtain a divorce from his wife after she joined the government's Ministry of the Interior in order to pay the bills at home. Castro raged that he would rather die a thousand times than suffer impotently from such an insult. The 15 years behind bars ended up being less than one, however, after Batista granted amnesty to his enemies in a publicity stunt surrounding the 1954 presidential election, one in which Batista ran unopposed. The dictator falsely believed that Castro posed no threat to his power. But he remained a cautious fellow and continued to have the government keep tabs on the newly unshackled would-be revolutionary. Freed from both prison and marriage, Fidel would go on to conceive his second and third child. Armed with newfound fame, Castro would go on to have a number of affairs and one-night stands with his supporters. No one knows for sure but he is generally regarded to have fathered nine children and taken responsibility for none of them. Batista's generosity to his enemies ceased in 1955 as increasingly violent demonstrations swept across the island state and began to affect the production and export of sugar. Political parties, including Castro's July 26 movement, called for new elections. Batista instead cracked down on dissent and began to jail potential opponents. Sensing danger, the Castro brothers fled to Mexico, with Fidel writing to the press that he was, quote, leaving Cuba because all doors of peaceful struggle have been closed to me. I believe the hour has come to take our rights and not be for them, he said, to fight instead of pleading for them. He gathered his forces in Mexico, a mere 80 men to join himself and his brother. His previous death-defying antics had instilled in him the belief that men do not shape destiny, destiny produces the man for the hour. Notably, among those that destiny had supposedly chosen was Che Guevara, an Argentinian who had begun his adult life as a doctor to underserved communities. Che radicalized along his life's journey upon seeing the injustice that was rampant throughout the land. At some point, the doctor completely lost sight of the Hippocratic Oath and wrote, quote, I will dip my weapons in blood and crazed with fury, I will cut the throats of my defeated enemies. I can already feel my dilated nostrils savoring the acrid smell of gunpowder and blood of death to the enemy. 
By the time he met the Castro brothers in Mexico, he was affirmed in his belief that the United States was the root of the evil he had encountered after having witnessed the overthrow of Guatemalan reformist president Jacob Arbenz by the CIA. The PBS American Experience refers to Che at the time of his arrival in Mexico as little more than a drifter, a wandering photographer, an underpaid medical researcher, a rebel in search of a cause. Che's greatest influence on the revolution would be his ardent belief that guerrilla warfare could free Latin Americans from imperialism and enable the government to fulfill its purpose to truly assist the people. The group purchased a rundown yacht named Grandma. The yacht was well past its prime. Originally designed to accommodate 12 people, the revolutionaries crammed all 82 aboard the leaky vessel. It was the only boat they could afford, having previously attempted to buy a state-of-the-art Catalina flying boat maritime aircraft, and then a U.S. naval crash rescue boat. Evidently, both of which were out of the price range of an ex-con and his psychotic doctor who refused to take financial payment for his care. The voyage was planned to take five days, the last of which would launch a predetermined uprising by other revolutionaries already stashed throughout Cuba. The grandma had other plans. Its engine failed. The boat, laden with 60 extra passengers and loads of Mexican guns, took on water and had to be bailed out. A man even fell overboard. To their credit, they spent a day searching for their comrade, despite not having enough fuel to complete the voyage. Rather than the planned five days, the voyage took eight. The countrywide planned uprising still went ahead as planned, just without Castro. They were quickly put down by the Batista government, and upon interrogation of those revolutionaries, Fidel's plan was put out into the open, and Batista's forces met them at the landing point, a beach that Fidel had personally chosen in order to invoke the legendary revolutionary Jose Martí's landing 100 years earlier. The guerrillas had little chance. They arrived at the beach with Batista's forces already in place. His men were unprepared for a fight, as they were immensely hungry, for the yacht had run out of food, and they had spent the past eight days in a perpetual state of seasickness full of unwashed bodies crammed into a boat seven times too small. Faced with opposition, they crash-landed in a mangrove swamp and were forced to leave their supplies and ammunition behind. After the initial encounter with government forces, only 12 of the original 82-man crew made it deep into the Sierra Maestra Mountains to rest and regroup. Both of the Castros and Che were among the handful of survivors. Once in the mountains, they were sheltered and supported by peasants who despised the government. The July 26 movement's Marxist ideas found support among these rural inhabitants of the mountains. Unlike Batista's men, the rebels did not steal from the peasants or beat them for an insubordination. They respected the rights of women. Che practiced medicine and taught others to care for the local inhabitants. 
As he had in prison, Fidel began the process of creating schools in the mountains, helping peasants to learn how to read and write. Any of his men that had violated the rights of the locals was sentenced to death. Although it wasn't how he planned it, Castro would find the seeds of revolution from what had appeared to be the lowest point of his movement. He would go on to say, I began the revolution with 82 men. If I had to do it again, I'd do it with 10 or 15 of absolute faith. It does not matter how small you are if you have faith and a plan of action. As Mao discovered, impoverished peasants are always open to the political promise of land reform. In 1958, Cuba's revolutionaries were able to establish a rebel radio in order to spread their ideas across the island. The broadcasts became more trusted than government sources of information as it became clear that the Batista regime was heavily censoring information. The anti-government movement remained decentralized, however. Underground guerrillas sprung up across the country, and urban workers assisted their efforts by printing leaflets to spread support for insurgents. Soon, different groups were simultaneously attacking railways, public buildings, and telephone lines with homemade bombs. Then, government officials became the targets of nationwide assassination plots. Historians Leo Huberman and Paul Sweezy point out that the rebels had three advantages which they leveraged for victory. First, the battle was to be on their home grounds, a terrain of rugged mountains and treacherous jungle made to order for guerrilla warfare and defensive fighting. Secondly, unlike the government soldiers, the rebel soldiers weren't paid for fighting. They fought for something they believed in. Third, their leaders were men of outstanding ability, inspiring, humane, and master strategists in guerrilla warfare. By 1958, rebel groups were strong enough to meet and form the Pack of Carcass, which solidified Fidel Castro as the opposition leader to Batista. Batista was largely responsible for his own defeat. Deciding to rule through fear rather than inspiration, the dictator cracked down harshly on dissent. His forces imprisoned and tortured anyone suspected of aiding the rebels. He indiscriminately burnt entire plantations, ensuring starvation and unrest among the very people that were already the most inclined to join his opposition. 1958 became the year of Batista's downfall. First, in July, he ordered a major offensive into the rebel stronghold of the Sierra Madres. His men either deserted in large numbers or surrendered without firing. This failed mission dramatically increased the amount and quality of firepower in the freedom fighters' hands. Secondly, two years after the fighting had begun, Batista oversaw a rigged election without the support of the U.S., which had imposed an arms embargo on the island over concerns at how he had handled the prior couple of years in office. The U.S. had decided to cut ties with Batista. They ordered him to give up power and hand it off to a new caretaker government, who would then immediately receive military and diplomatic support from America. Batista refused, however, and stubbornly held on to power. 
This was despite the fact that his army was having trouble locating enough guns to assemble against the Castros. At 3 a.m. on January 1, 1959, Batista abandoned Cuba. He took with him at least $300 million, which he had earned overseeing seven years of corruption as president. Critics claim that he took an additional $700 million in fine art and other historic treasures. Mexico and the United States both denied him asylum, and he eventually found his way to Portugal. A ceasefire was hastily arranged, and on January 8th, Fidel Castro and his Barbudos, or bearded men, entered Havana to establish a provisional government. Castro told U.S. observers that it would only be when we have fulfilled our promise of good government that I will shave off my beard. Appropriately, we never again saw a clean-shaven Fidel. He would later use that beard as an example of his dedication to the continuous revolution, pointing out that if you calculate 15 minutes a day to shave, that is 5,000 minutes a year spent shaving. Historian Sebastian Balfour explains the rise of this bearded madman. He writes that, quote, Castro thus stepped into a power vacuum that was not entirely of his making. He had skillfully seized the opportunities offered by a conjunction of historical conditions that were unique to Cuba. His success, moreover, owed as much to his imaginative use of the mass media as to the guerrilla campaign. By 1959, Castro had become the repository of many different hopes for Cuba's regeneration. As he had made his slow, triumphal way by road from Santiago to Havana, he was treated as the last in the long line of Cuban heroes. The last because unlike the others, he had survived and prevailed. Transitioning from running a provisional parallel government in the mountains that paid lip service to selfless ideals can in many ways be easier than running an actual one. Particularly one whose national bank was just looted by the prior government and one that historically had been dependent upon the goodwill of America, a nation that the new regime had made a talking point out of despising them. Rather than remaining behind a desk, Fidel gave daily speeches detailing his vision for Cuba. It was not uncommon to see the new leader spend an afternoon in a rural village discussing who should repair tractors or fix the people's refrigerators. His high hopes for the future combined with his grounded understanding of what it was like to live the life of a normal Cuban gave them false hopes for the future. He came to power as the head of a coalition of anti-Batista groups. The groups were united by their opposition to Batista, but that doesn't mean that they agreed on anything else. Six months into the formation of the new coalition government, the coalition's prime minister and president resigned over complaints about the influence of Fidel's Marxist communists in their day-to-day -day operations, as well as annoyance at the fact that Castro refused to call for official elections, which should have been a unifying complaint since the whole thing started when Batista had canceled Fidel's own congressional election. 
The abdication of the coalition's oppositional voices only enabled the communist forces to increase their influence and speed up the revolution, as well as shading it a deeper color of crimson. Forming a government was difficult enough, but El Jefe Maximo took on what he believed to be Cuba's biggest problem, that of land ownership. Redistributing privately owned land is a messy process. Castro admitted as much when he pointed out that a revolution is not a bed of roses. In the aftermath of the resignations, protest movements immediately formed against him. Batista, sitting an ocean away, likely was proud of how Fidel Castro dealt with them. The first dissident to be arrested was the former military chief of Camagay, Huber Mateos. This popular leader had initially resigned over Castro's refusal to name the date for the next election. He was charged with conspiracy and treason against the revolution. Then there came the case of the missing plane belonging to Camilo Sinfuegos, a leading revolutionary figure and one of the dozen survivors of the Grandma Crossing. Sinfuegos was a potential rival to Fidel, and thus most believed that he was preemptively purged. As the calendar turned to 1961, U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower broke off all relations with the nation of Cuba. Freed from having to worry about what the Americans thought, Fidel would go on to announce on April 16th that Cuba was officially a socialist state, stating for the world to hear that I am a Marxist-Leninist and shall be one until the end of my life. The world was deep into the Cold War at this point, and if you lost the support of one superpower, it was easy to get cozy with the other. One day after his proclamation of political intent came the failed Bay of Pigs operation. Initiated under Eisenhower but put into action by John F. Kennedy, the operation shared a number of similarities to Castro's own failed landing in 1956. 1,400 Cuban exiles had been trained and armed by the CIA. They arrived on April 17th from Nicaragua and Guatemala to the Bay of Pigs, only to find it lit with floodlights. The island's regime had known about the training camps as early as October the prior year. Castro was woken at 3.15 a.m. and, unlike Hitler on D-Day, immediately swarmed all militia units to the area. When the rebels couldn't overcome the initial resistance on the beaches, the Kennedy administration denied them promised air support. JFK had frozen in the moment and decided to not go further with a program that had been set up and desired by the previous administration. The rebels paid the price for his flip-flop with their lives. A year later, in 1962, Kennedy would have to return his focus to the island nation in order to deal with the Cuban Missile Crisis. A year after that, in 1963, Kennedy would go on to eloquently explain the challenges that the long, complicated history between the nations posed for future relations based upon trust. Kennedy stated, I believe that there is no country in the world, including any and all the countries under colonial domination, where economic colonization, humiliation, and exploitation were worse than in Cuba, in part owing to my country's policies during the Batista regime. 
I approved the proclamation which Fidel Castro made in the Sierra Maestra when he justifiably called for justice and especially yearned to rid Cuba of corruption. I will go even further. To some extent, it is as though Batista was the incarnation of a number of sins on the part of the United States. Now we shall have to pay for those sins. In the matter of the Batista regime, I am in agreement with the first Cuban revolutionaries. That is perfectly clear. By this point, the Cuban embargo had already been placed on Cuba by the Kennedy administration. Like most sanctions, the embargo was designed to stress the Cuban people to a breaking point, upon which the U.S. hoped that they would then rise up to overthrow the Castro regime. For the most part, the embargo is still in place today, despite the fact that Fidel Castro died five years ago. Without the markets of America, it was believed that the administration of Fidel would be short-lived. But keep in mind that none of his revolutionary ideas depended upon the United States, a capitalist force that he despised. Cutting him off was in many ways a gift. Anything that he did which then succeeded was proof of his power and legitimacy. Anything that failed could just be scapegoated as the fault of the wicked embargo. Reforms were the order of the day between 1959 and 1962, the year of the embargo. Castro followed the blueprint of his history will absolve me speech. He set forth fulfilling his promise to provide work for the unemployed, land for rural workers, and improved working conditions for all. The middle class were told that they would be afforded the option to become professionals, and that women would receive equal labor protections to their male counterparts. The Agrarian Reform Act was passed and greatly restricted the land that could be privately owned. Bonds were given as compensation for all land that was seized and then turned into agrarian cooperatives. Foreign land and businesses were seized via nationalization and redistributed by the government. Castro made sure that the government paid for each business that it snatched but the amount paid out was precisely the price that had previously been negotiated under Cuba's previous corrupt governments. Thus, multi-million dollar properties were bought by the state for a single dollar. Import quotas were then imposed on luxury items. Keep in mind that this is a small island nation, one that would typically import luxury goods so that they could instead focus on widespread operations that either supported their survival or ones that were able to be sold abroad for large profits, such as sugar. The tax on the importation of luxury goods successfully redistributed income from the upper class and allowed the government to reinvest in industrialization in order to diversify the economy. Not everyone reaped the benefits of redistribution. Between 1959 and 1962, more than a quarter of a million people abandoned Cuba. It was an exodus that nearly every aspiring communist nation experienced. But like the embargo, this exodus wasn't necessarily a terrible thing for Castro. 
Those who left were typically individuals who weren't willing to fall in line beneath the heavy boot of the new state. Instead, it was the agitators that left, those who would have spoken up against the injustices that were to come. After the Cuban Missile Crisis ended in a negotiation, the United States agreed to never again invade Cuba, thus protecting the nascent state from outside threats. The Missile Crisis also served to create tension between Cuba and the Soviet Union, which had failed to fulfill its agreement to defend the territory with the lives of Moscow's citizens if necessary. Although Castro would remain aligned to the Soviet Union, he was no longer obligated to stand in lockstep with the Russians. From this moment, Fidel was free to remake the country according to his own beliefs. It would be a revolution in his own image. For Castro gleefully proclaimed that I am the revolution. In that speech, he was attempting to get everyone to understand that each Cuban was the revolution, that each individual was equal under Marxist-Leninist philosophy, but his intent in this speech did not match the intent of his actions. The true purpose was to elevate him as the indispensable center of the revolution. Fidel Castro was extremely aware of the concept of personality cults. He talked at great lengths about the extent that both Lenin and Stalin's cult of personality harmed each man's legacy. As a dying wish, Fidel expressed his desire for a law to be passed that would forbid any buildings or roads from being named after himself. But the naming of objects is only one aspect of a cult of personality, and Fidel's humbleness regarding his place in the country's history was just another part of his carefully cultivated cult of personality. Proclaiming that the revolution would never truly be finished, Fidel regularly wore his military fatigues to remind everyone of the central role that he had played in defeating the Batista regime through guerrilla warfare. Remember that Fidel had been trained as a lawyer. He was merely a soldier out of necessity. Today, the official newspaper of the Cuban Communist Central Committee is named Grandma, a purposeful choice designed to turn even his failures into heroic portions of the nation's story. Images of Fidel's bushy beard, long cigar, and green military uniform remain to this day more recognizable around the developing world than Mariana, the fictional French revolutionary mascot or even images of Lenin. Similarly, Che's image is used throughout Latin America and Africa to sell everyday products, including soup and satchels, which is exactly what Castro was attempting to avoid by asking that nothing be named after himself. Artists were appropriated by the revolution to create images of the heroes of the revolution with graffiti-style slogans of Socialism or death, yo soy revolution, and we will win. These symbols of the revolution, all quotes by Cuba's dear leader, replaced capitalist billboards around the country. 
Those billboards had been omnipresent under the Batista regime, where everything in Cuba was able to be sold. This art was central to Fidel's cult. David Kunzel, whose work examines public graphic images in Cuba, tells us that the very media, which in pre-revolutionary Cuba were the most completely subservient to consumerism, have affected a dramatic transition for which there is no precedent anywhere. All the arts in Cuba, theater, music, dance, literature, have undergone a radical transformation. But it is in the visual mass media which capitalism evolved to serve its own specific and historic needs that the transition to socialist values appears the most extraordinary. Of course, this artistic revolution was coerced by the state rather than inspired by it. Any artist that was deemed to have created work that was outside of the revolution, or anything that did not portray its leaders in the most favorable light, were jailed or executed. Castro's speeches generously peppered the word I throughout in order to remind everyone that Fidel was the reason for the revolution. Like Hitler and Mao, his portrait could be found hanging in every single school, business, and military institution. Biographer Tad Zulak writes that these ever-present images allowed Fidel to live bathed in the absolute adulation orchestrated by the propaganda organs of his regime. His presence was ubiquitous throughout the country and was paired with teachings that he was infallible. Even his failures, such as the July 26 attack on the Moncada barracks, became key chapters in his legacy. The number 26 is still considered near sacred in Cuba today. The consistent wearing of his military uniform did a number of things for Fidel. First, it reminded the people whom he was oppressing, or in his mind liberating from capitalism, that he had the support of the military, which could be called forth at any moment to destroy dissent. Secondly, it reminded the people that he had risen via a revolution that was never-ending. The fight would always continue, and thus one had to always be at the ready. Third, it created an association between Fidel and the Latin American concept of machismo, which serves in Latin America and other parts of the world to reinforce the dominance of the patriarchy. For Cuba, machismo encouraged men to take on personalities that were hyper-masculine, viral, strong, paternalistic, sexually dominant, and financial provider for the family. For onlookers, Fidel's ever-present beard, cigar, and military fatigues proclaimed his macho-ness for all to see. He was the charismatic leader that could lead them to the utopia that had not existed since the arrival of Columbus. He did what Marti couldn't, deliver a revolution and survive it till the end. Over the next five decades, Cubans would regularly refer to him as their papa, the father of their country. He wore his macho military look so well that People magazine rewarded him in 1984 with a place on their list of best dressed. But there's no list long enough for his policy record to make it onto a best list. Our next episode will detail the policies that Cuba's new head of state would implement, as well as the disastrous results that would come along with them. <laughs>